I'm Scott Hervey from Weintraub Tobin. And I'm Josh Escovito from Weintraub Tobin. Welcome to another installment of The Briefing by the IP Law Blog. Scott, I understand you have a spooky copyright case you want to discuss today. I do have a spooky copyright case. And keeping in our theme, right? You love this? That's right. It's it's spooky for TV and motion picture producers and studios and absolutely horrific for the producers of the slasher franchise Friday the 13th. This concerns a claim for copyright reversion uh, or termination made by Victor Miller, the screenwriter of Friday the 13th. He was seeking reversion and termination of the rights in the screenplay to the popular horror film. This case is aptly entitled Horror Inc. versus Victor Miller. I don't think we've covered the issue of copyright termination. Can you provide a brief explanation? Sure. So under Section 203 of the Copyright Act, uh, authors are permitted or an author's heir is permitted to terminate grants of copyright assignments and licenses that were made on or after January 1st, 1978, when certain conditions have been met. I know you only mentioned copyright assignments and licenses, not works for hire. That's because the Copyright Act does not allow for the termination of a copyright transferred as a work for hire. That's correct, Josh. Section 203 specifically states as follows, quote, in the case of any work other than a work made for hire, the exclusive or non-exclusive grant of a transfer or license of copyright or of any right under a copyright executed by the author on or after January 1st, 1978, otherwise then by a will, is subject to termination under the following conditions. And then the act continues to list the conditions applicable to the transfer or termination. And those factors mainly discuss who can effectuate a termination, when termination notices have to be served, and what the termination notice must say. So this case involved whether Miller was an employee of Horror Inc. or its predecessor, Manny Inc. You see, if Miller was an employee and the screenplay was created in the course and scope of his employment, then the work would be a work for hire and not subject to termination. If, however, he created the work as an independent contractor, well, then the work was not a work for hire and he could terminate the transfer. The facts of this case are a bit unique and don't fit the way most mainstream studio and production companies handle their writer deals. However, back in 1979, Friday the 13th was an independent film production and Miller's agreement was done, I would imagine, without the assistance of an entertainment lawyer. It seems that way, Josh. According to the court's recounting of the facts of the case, Miller's engagement to write the screenplay was documented on a WGA form called a Writer's Flat Deal Contract, which is just a two-page document entitled Employment Agreement. It, com it comprised primarily of an introduction and six numbered paragraphs. Not one of them included any reference to the screenplay being a work made for hire. Section 101 of the Act defines two categories of work for hire. The first is a work made by an employee within the scope of his employment, and the second is where a work is created pursuant to a written agreement which specifically states that the work will be treated as one made for hire. Because the WGA form contract signed does not provide that the screenplay is a work for hire, the only argument Hoare could make was that Miller was an employee of Manny Corporation when he created the screenplay. 
That's right, Josh. The 1989 Supreme Court case of Community for Creative Nonviolence versus Reed established a framework for determining whether a creator is an employee or a non-employee author in matters of copyright. In Reed, the Supreme Court explained that for the purpose of copyright, the term employee is intended to describe the conventional master-servant relationship as understood by common law agency doctrine. And the courts uh, should rely on general common law of agency to determine whether an individual is an employee or an independent contractor. Thus, if an individual qualifies as an employee under the general common law of agency, and if the work was prepared by that person within the scope of his engagement, well, then the work uh, is a work that was prepared for the employer and it is a work for hire. Reed identified 13 non-exhaustive factors to determine whether the relationship qualified as an employee-employer relationship under the general common law of agency. One, hiring parties' right to control the manner and means by which the work is accomplished. Two, the skill required to create the work. Three, the source of the instrumentalities and tools. Four, the location of the work. Five, the duration of the relationship between the parties. Six, whether the hiring party has the right to assign additional projects to the hired party. Seven, the extent of the hired party's discretion over when and how long to work. Eight, the method of payment. Nine, the hired party's role in hiring and paying assistance. 10, whether the work is part of the regular business of the hiring party. 11, whether the hiring party is in the business. 12, the provision of employee benefits. And 13, the tax treatment of the hired party. It's just a coincidence that there happens to be 13, I guess. I guess so, right? <laughs> so on appeal, Horror Inc. argued that the district court erred in interpreting employee under the Copyright Act in a manner that was in conflict with the National Labor Relations Act. Horror argued that Miller's WGA membership inherently created an employer-employee relationship between Manny and Miller, independent from the Reed framework. This was, I think, a very clever argument. It's one that goes back to the uh, creation of the WGA basic agreement. In the NLRB case, in MGM, the NLRB determined that screenwriters who formed the Screenwriters Guild, which was the predecessor to the WGA, were employees under the NLRA, thus entitling them to unionize. As a result, the WGA was later able to negotiate the basic agreement on behalf of all writers. Uh, that are WGA members, obviously. Based on that, Horror argued that Miller's relationship with Manny is one of employment for all purposes because Miller was a WGA member and Manny was a WGA signatory company at the time the Flat Riders Agreement was entered into. Uh, Horror Inc. argued that the existence of the WGA and its intended collective bargained for protections inherently creates an employment relationship between Manny and Miller and not an independent contractor relationship. Uh, and such that the case law's application of the Reed factors were really unnecessary. Really creative, uh, really creative arguing there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it kind of fell flat on the court. Uh, but this is why 
this case was so closely watched by the entertainment industry. Not because it would suddenly change the way in which production companies and studio prepa studios prepared their writer deals, but because it would give them further clarity when acquiring older works or independent works where the paperwork was put together by non-lawyers not fully versed in the complexities of copyright law or entertainment deals. So what did the court find? The court found that labor laws and copyright laws serve two different purposes. The Copyright Act uses more of a restrictive definition of employment, one aimed at limiting the contours of the work for higher determination and protecting the individual creators of works. In the labor and employment law context, the court found that the concept of employment is supposed to be broader, adopting a more sweeping approach suitable to serve workers and their collective bargaining interests and in establishing rights. So the court, as creative as it was, rejected Horror's argument and engaged in an analysis based solely on the Reed factors. And in doing so, they found Miller not to be an employee. So what do you think's next? Well, I think it's deal-making time for Miller, which really is the entire purpose of the recapture statute. Uh, or the, the section in the Copyright Act allowing uh, authors to recapture rights. It's to give creators who may have been in a relatively poor bargaining position a second bite at the poison apple. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting, Scott, and not to mention funny. So thanks for sharing. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this installment of The Briefing by the IP Law Blog. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to our YouTube channel. And if you're interested in more content, please visit our blog at theiplawblog.com. <laughs>